Welcome to another edition of Women of Character Barrier Busters, brought to you by the TurkNet Leadership Group. I'm Ann Quiello, a senior consultant at TurkNet and also an executive coach. We like to support leaders to figure out what their goals are and then find the right paths to achieve them. In this podcast series, I talk with women who have persevered through multiple challenges to reach the vision that they have for themselves. They've been very generous in sharing their lessons learned for others of us who may face similar challenges and are working hard to bust barriers maybe getting in the way. Today, I'm excited to chat with Susan Steinbrecher. She's an internationally acclaimed businesswoman, an executive coach, speaker, author, and president of Steinbrecher & Associates, a management consulting firm. Uh, Prior to consulting, Susan was a rising star with one of the country's best-known hotel chains for 14 years. She went from entry level to becoming the hotel chain's youngest general manager in its history and then ultimately to leading the strategic training and development initiatives there. She's written five books, Meaningful Alignment, Mastering Emotionally Intelligent Interactions at Work and Life, Ken Show, A Modern Awakening, Instigating Change in an Era of Global Renewal, which, by the way, was an Amazon bestseller, Heart-Centered Leadership, An Invitation to Lead from the Inside, Roadmap to Success with Stephen Covey and Ken Blanchard, other well-known leadership gurus, and then finally, Straight Talk from America's Top 10 Speakers. And it's a special honor for me because Susan has been a colleague, a mentor, teacher, friend for over 10 years. I've Mm -hmm. always respected Susan for her self-confidence, her love for coaching, and her deep understanding of leadership. Susan, Mm -hmm. thank you for joining me. Thank you, Anne. It's my pleasure. And very nice words. Thank you for that. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. All deserved. Well, as I mentioned, you were the youngest to ever be promoted to the general manager of a well-known hotel chain. And I think it was Embassy Suites brand, right? Yeah. Right. Very well known. How did you set your leadership apart from all the others to get that kind of advancement at such an early age? How did that happen? That's a great question. So when I decided I wanted to go into the hospitality business, I had a brother that was in it and it looked fun and intriguing. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try that out. And I started in, you know, graveyard shift because that's all I could get right out of high school. <laughs> and then just kind of work my way up. And then when I got to the general manager role, what's, what's funny is when I was about 19, I had set my goal to become a GM of a hotel by the age of 30. And people laughed and said, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to do that. They thought I was like an overachiever. And I even interviewed general managers of hotels. What does it take to do your job? And they were polite, but they were kind of chuckling off to the side, like, <laughs> yeah, this kid, you know, whatever. Um, but so I did make it. I made it by age 25, actually. So I think in terms of leadership, I, I have to be really honest. I was an assistant general manager for two years prior to that next promotion of being a GM. And I mean, it was a lot of hard work. <laughs> so a very strong work ethic absolutely mattered. But when I reflect back, I don't think I was a very good people leader. And when I became the assistant general manager, I really learned the hard way 
that being direct, not bringing others along with you, those kinds of things were not going to set you up for success. So I had a very astute boss mentor who said there's some training I think you should go through and all of that stuff, which I did. I adopted some of those skills that were really important. And then when I was promoted to general manager, I would love to say that I was ready. And I, in hindsight, I was drowning. That first year was the hardest year probably of my career. And I thought, boy, it's one step up. What's the big deal? And then I realized, oh, wow, there's a much bigger picture here. Like I was in charge of different aspects of the hotel as an assistant GM. Now I had the whole thing and I'm the youngest and every single one of my direct reports were double my age. So there was an age situation. I was also one of the very few females. There was that as a barrier as well. And then frankly, just lack of experience. I don't, what did I know about engineering? You know, we had to replace the roof. I don't know anything about that. So I had to rely on my chief engineer. So the company was very supportive in providing additional help and resources, but they put a lot of pressure on, which is what made that a a really tough year for me. But all in all, what I'm really proud of with that experience is, boy, I learned really quickly what it's like to run a $45 million asset, manage 100 employees in a time when our, you know, when I had came in as that GM, our market conditions were perfect. We had phenomenal business and everything shifted in the first three months. Brand new products were coming online that became a competitor to us. And so I had to very quickly figure out the talent issue. I had a director of sales. I was not really ready in the role, needed to put somebody else in that role. So I had to make a lot of changes, which also didn't look good. I mean, here I am pretty much cleaning house but every one of those hires worked well. And so navigated through that very tough year uh, with a lot of heart and hard work and perseverance and asking for help where I feel like it was safe. Well, after about a year, I felt like, okay, now I feel like I can breathe. And so much so that I received a promotion (laughs) to train general managers now, which is what, why I shifted out of operations and went into training and development. I had a very astute VP of HR come in and say, you know what you're really good at? (laughs) What you're really good at is developing people. And I had learned about people skills, but my passion was to see people thrive. And so I would work really hard to work with people to figure out where was the skill gap and how do I, how do I help that? So that's, that's kind of how all that happened, but it was a tough year. And I would say I, I made a lot of mistakes, but in hindsight, probably the best year for learning and growing and teaching others, frankly, (laughs) because I I did make it at the end. (laughs) You know, Susan, I am just, I'm really surprised to be honest with you, because I always look at you as being this (laughs) super, achiever, having always accomplished so much. So when you say that that was a tough year, that you found out what you didn't know, (laughs) and (laughs) uh, it was much more than you thought, that's being very honest, very transparent. And I can imagine many have learned from you through those lessons that you had to learn the hard way. So, uh, so, so thank you for being honest about that. Because, you know, you have to be. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So after your corporate life, you decided to start your own consulting business, right? So how did you know that that was the right next step? 
I'd love to say it was a master plan, but as sometimes things happen, so here I was promoted, I was moved, relocated to the corporate office in charge of training and development for the organization, um, did that for four years. And then that's when they said, we're going to move our headquarters to another city. And it didn't make any sense for me to do the move. And as much as I appreciated the offer to move, because out of a hundred people, like 20 of us got an offer. So it was only two of us that got an offer that turned it down. And I was one of the two, but I was like, it doesn't make sense. I was married at the time with my husband's career. It didn't make any sense for me to make the move for him. And for me, it was a lateral move. And I thought, I don't think, I don't think that feels right. And I had been sort of thinking about branching out on my own. So that actually gave me the decision point. I either take the job and move, or I stay and find something else, or I start my own. And it was 1992, so it was 30 years ago. And people said, this is the worst time for you to be starting a consulting business or a training business. The economy was not good at the time. And blah, blah, blah. But I just felt, I just had a, a intuition that I, I want to at least give it a shot. And I had you know, great support from my husband at the time. And he was like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I said, well, then I start this thing and I fail. And he says, okay, let's play with that. If that's the worst that can happen, then what, what happens? And I said, well, then I've got to go find a job. And he says, okay, so let's say you find a job. What's the worst that can happen? As I said, I'm flipping burgers and a fast food joint. And he looked at me and he said, okay, <laughs> so knowing you, how long will it be before you're the regional vice president? Right. And I yeah. said, okay. okay." And he says, listen, if your other option is to go find a job anyway, why would you not at least give this a try? And 30 years later, it was the best decision I made. <laughs> yes. I would say for all of us, it was the best decision you made. So it sounds like your uh, former husband was a coach himself. He used a well, lot in of some coach ways, you know, He was certainly a teacher. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A lot of ways. <laughs> well, and then you went about writing five books. How did you begin to write? Yeah, I, will, I would love to say that I love writing. I really don't. I love speaking, but literally my first book, Heart Center Leadership, happened. I was coaching leaders I'm probably trying to think, I'm probably 10 years into my business at that point, I'm thinking, uh, right around there and uh, close. And I remember coming out of a coaching session and frustrated with that experience with this leader. And I remember saying, gosh, if they would just, meaning clients, would not make this so difficult. It's just not this difficult. If they could just do these eight things is what I had. And I wrote them down on a piece of paper and those eight things became seven things, and that became the seven principles of heart-centered leadership. And I'm very excited that we're releasing our third edition next week. So oh. it, is, it has really held the, the, the time. And, and I will say that when we published the first edition in 2003, people said, you have completely lost your mind. To write a book called Heart-Centered Leadership, it's not sellable, it's not marketable, it even feels woo-woo, it might even feel religious, you know, whatever. Everybody had their own interpretation of the words. And I said, listen, all I can tell you is it's not about making money, it's about sending a message out there. And it's going to resonate with some, and it's not with others, and I am okay with that. But we have to start having the conversation about leading with head and heart, and we have to start providing some principles or skills to do that better because we have a lot of issues. Now this goes back, right? This is back in 2003. So 
fast forward, another decade goes by, my publicist says, you know, there's a bunch of books with the word heart and leadership in it now. So maybe you're a decade ahead. Let's go ahead and re-release the second edition, update things. That's when I did that. And then we're now releasing the third, which is the only thing we updated there was the preface, which is to include all that we've learned through COVID and all that we've learned through Dr. Bennett, my co-author. Um, he's a mental and wellness expert and everything we've learned in this whole space. Um, so that's why we're releasing the third. But that was the first one. And then others came as... Um, as we saw needs yeah. pop up. <laughs> so everyone has heard it here. Your third edition of Heart Centered Leadership yes. is out next week. Yeah, it's coming out next week. So wow. we're very excited about it. All right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a big fan of your latest work, uh, which is uh, Meaningful Alignment, Mastering Emotionally Intelligent Interactions at Work and Life. And in fact, I often recommend it to my clients, to my coaching clients as part of their leadership development work. But I was hoping you would tell our listeners a little bit about this book, how it was conceived, and about its key lessons or principles or however you describe them. Oh, thank you for that. Once again, it was an inflection point. It was, I remember, I remember the scene perfectly. So Dr. Robert Schaefer, my co-author of Meaningful Alignment, um, and I were sitting in a room and, um, and I said, you know, Robert, what are our clients struggling with and how do we know that? And we started reflecting on all these conversations. And then we said, you know, how do we know we have an issue with people not, because I said, people don't know how to have the conversations. And if I could just for a moment, step back to go back a little bit, even prior to that day, when we had hit our 20th anniversary, I did an ideation and I pulled 10 people into a room for two days. And I said, what does Steinbrook and Associates need to look like in the next decade? What should we be focusing our work on? And I had ideas going in around this kind of meaningful alignment thing, but I didn't want to offer anything at that point. And I wanted to see what people said. And we sort of ended up with a lot of people suggesting that type of thing. And I said, okay, that's confirmation. Fast forward several years after, and Robert and I sitting in this room, how do we know this is true? And, um, you know, we just whiteboarded all these symptoms that we were seeing in society. We were seeing cyberbullying. We were seeing divorce rate. We were seeing drug addiction rate. We were seeing all these things that said people are really struggling with emotion, how to handle, handle their emotions, emotional composure, resilience, and how to have alignment types of conversations, both in their personal and professional lives. So it started with literally whiteboarding and then saying, well, well, what would be the skills we would need to be teaching? And we said, well, you know, there's two sides. There's the inside job and the outside job. But the inside job was that emotional management piece. How do I manage my own emotion? I'm in a, I'm in a conversation trying to gain alignment with somebody else and I feel the heat rise. What do I do with myself to be able to persevere through this conversation? What do I know are my trigger points? And, and we approach that with, well, what do you do in the moment? But also, how do you build sort of the reserve of strength to call upon when you need it? So we addressed that whole piece of it. And then the outside part was, well, how do we actually have this conversation? Because we can all say all day long, we need to do that better. But how to do that better is for people, they don't know. So we adopted a skill set and some tools to help people navigate that conversation. So it came from an ideation originally really letting that sort of fester is probably not the right word, but just sort of resonate around with that and kind of go, what, what does it feel like, look like? How do we know it's true? 
who needs this, who doesn't need this. And we said, well, I don't think there's anybody that couldn't use it. <laughs> really, the long-term version is to take this work into homes and schools and prisons, et cetera. That's the big global vision. But the corporates where we started, because that's our sweet spot and where our experience and our contacts are. But we really want to use this work um, in other areas of life. So we'll see where we, we're not there yet. Mm. <laughs> we're into some schools now, but we're not where we, where we want to be. That's right. What I love about that is that there's, as you said, the outside in component. That's the structure around how to hold a conversation, how to structure it. Exactly the process, if you will. And and yes, we can all probably develop a habit around including this process step and so on and so forth. Sure. The piece that most people struggle with is the one that you've mentioned, the inside game, yeah. uh, the emotional component. And mm-hmm. so that's what makes this particular model so powerful mm-hmm. is until you've addressed that emotional component, you really don't have only have 50% of it, in other words, and probably less than 50% of it because it it does play such a powerful role. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious now, you've written these books, you've got a vision now for Steinbrecher and Associates. What's next for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, I'm actually in the middle of pondering what that is because I'm starting to get more involved in the community side. I'm starting to see the impact a lot of communities and schools are having with things like mini, not a lack of meaningful alignment, I should say. I mean, if, if we ever could have guessed what is happening in our world today when we first launched this book three years ago, I don't think we could have even predicted where we are today. So we know that there's just such a significant need for this. Um, and so trying to tackle what that looks like and how to get that closer to the finish line, I think, is where there's going to be some some emphasis. There's not a new book in my mind at this moment. There might be something that basically um, banks off this concept that I'm not I'm not sure about. Mm. But yeah, still pondering that a little bit. But I just know there's still a lot of need for good coaching, which we do, and I do a lot of team intervention. I'm a licensed mediator, so I've mediated situations between two people in a corporate space. And sometimes that rolls up to teams. So all of that seems to be in big demand, unfortunately, right now. Yes, unfortunately is right. Well, I've always thought about you, as I've said earlier, as being this self-confident, courageous, bold woman that I look (laughs) up to, writing books, growing your impact around the world through the work that you're doing. But I sometimes find that uh, women leaders hold themselves back because they lack confidence. So how important has self-confidence been to your success as a leader, as a coach? I would say really important. I mean, to be honest, really important because sometimes you just have to ask for it. You, You know, like the promotion, if I go back to being a general manager, it's like I asked for that promotion from an assistant GM to a GM. They almost said no. There was hesitancy from one regional manager, and that really didn't have anything to do with my ability. It was a misunderstanding or misperception on something that he observed way years before. Once I realized that, but see, I was confident and bold enough to sit down with him and have basically a meaningful alignment conversation. When I think about it now, that's funny. <laughs> I haven't really connected that till right now. Um, but just to say, hey, what is 
I, I perceive a different perception. Can you share with me where that came from? When he told me the story and was like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what actually happened that day. So when he heard that, he was like, I had no idea. So he'd been holding this thing against me. Anyway, he did end up paving the way and allowing me the opportunity to be promoted. But that took some confidence and courage to sit him down and saying, listen, I, I want this opportunity. I've got all these people supporting me. You're not supporting me. I want to understand that. And what can we do about that? And I think a lot of it just, honestly, I think it might even go back to family of origin. I mean, I'm the youngest of seven children. I, nothing, I mean, nothing was given to me. I had to learn very young that if you want anything in this world, you have to work for it. And I started working at an extremely young age. And that was just, you know, it was a mental model of mine, which you'll be familiar with that word, a core prevailing belief that came from family of origin is hard work equals success. And that's because a lot of little wins allow me to gain more confidence. But I will tell you, when I became that GM, it rocked me. Like I thought, I have hit the Peter principle. Like I, I cannot go any further. <laughs> and people were like, you're kidding, right? Like, no, I'm not kidding. I mean, I went home crying every night because I was working 70 hour work weeks. Nothing seemed to be working. And then I finally went, okay, I can only do what I can do. And if that's not enough, then, so when I sort of surrendered and said, if there's anything I'm not doing that I need to be doing, I will do it. But if that's not enough, I've got to let this thing go and move on. And it's honestly, that was a big turning point with me just saying, I'm going to do my best. And if that's not enough, oh, well. Then when I got a win, I got a great hire for director of sales. I mean, all the little wins added up. And then that helped me build more confidence. Mentorship from people that really believed in me also mattered. Those are things I always, always recommend. Always get a professional mentor. Sometimes inside the organization is really important. And sometimes outside and inside is helpful. Yes, yes. And it sounds like you had a champion somewhere along the way that was uh, that saw in you what you may not have seen in yourself, which I think exactly. is also very Exactly. And that was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as uh, you advise, coach, and mentor people yourself and other women, uh, what are the challenges that you're seeing today that they're facing? Yeah, I do coach a lot of uh, female executives. And... <laughs> This is going to be a bit bold as I say it, but I think you'll understand it. Where I find sometimes I have to help them navigate. So if you, if you look at a continuum, um, <laughs> there's a sweet spot of, of what really begins to work for women. And the opposite ends of the continuum are bitch on one side and doormat on the other. And, <laughs> and what I find is overcompensation. So what I find is women that, you know, refuse to be the doormat, they become very powerful, very confident women, very bold and courageous. All of that is good. And then they get to a point where they realize, wait, collaboration is really key. Bringing others along is really key. Building deep relationships um, so that because the higher up you go as a leader, your toolkit is all about how well you can inspire, negotiate, influence, and motivate, right? The common denominator of those words are people. It's not the task. I mean, hopefully, the higher up you go, you have people to do the task. It's all about can you influence a peer to a course of action that's going to serve you and your, and your team, are you able to manage up effectively? It's all things that deal with people and relationships. 
So what I find with a lot of these women they've struggled with is they've become too bold, too direct. They need to like start calming down. And I've had, I've actually had managers of these women say to me, this person has nothing more to prove. They need to just relax. And it's okay to be a woman, by the way. And <laughs> a little vulnerability goes a long way and et cetera. So finding that sweet spot between that bitch and doormat, you know, seems to be the yeah. biggest challenge um, for women specifically. Now, if you just say leaders in general, there's all kinds of, you know, patterns, but right. at least I find, but that for sure I find for women, it's a overcompensation. That's interesting. As you're talking, what comes up for me is almost coming from a place of fear, you know? Yes, very much. Versus a, a love for who they are and the wonderful, right. beautiful people that they are. Yeah. And what's, uh, what's brought them to this great place of uh, position and yes. potentially power to influence. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. Well, mm-hmm. what are the lessons from your own experience that you try to emphasize with your clients? Yeah, I, I would say for sure the willingness to sometimes take on, whether it's a role or a project, that may not be exactly what you want. But if you're strategic enough to say, hey, if I can take on something like this that allows me to get some exposure or to gain something in my knowledge that I know I don't have now. I think sometimes if, you know, sometimes um, promotions are not a linear, you know, lateral type of thing. Sometimes, you know, it's horizontal. (laughs) It's not always, you know, vertical. So sometimes it means this is not exactly the path I was going to go on, i.e. where I was with, I was going down the operations path, which is a very different path than a human resource path. I mean, training development and organizational development falls under HR. I didn't know I was going to go down the HR path, but I thought, well, but wait a minute, that gives me operations and now now HR experience. Why would I not take that on? So I feel like being willing to do a little bit of that sometimes, or whether it's being involved in a task force or a steering committee or something, saying yes and signing up for the visibility and the exposure goes a long way. And people remember, they remember the work you did. They remember the quality of the work that you did. They think of you where they may not have before, because you've got a little bit more visibility. So certainly that's one. And, you know, asking for what you want in the right way. This is not again about, you know, being in someone's face but it is about painting the picture as to what value the enterprise might have with the skills that you can provide. And I always say, always look for how you can help somebody else, especially a peer level, because they have goals, you have goals, they're not always aligned, but where can you help them? When they see your willingness to do that, they're much more apt to wanna do the same for you. And that's just gonna be an important stakeholder to have a good, good relationships with. How useful. And Susan, you always strike me as having this great knowledge, but bringing it into practical down-to-earth terms. So, so oh, thank, thank you, you so much. This has been a beautiful conversation, and I so appreciate thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, then it's mutual. All right. Well, we'll sign off, and thank you to our listeners for listening in, and thank you, Susan, for being so generous in your sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Anne. I really appreciate it.